are going to Israel today, and we're going to be gone for about 17 days. So we're just so grateful uh, for the people that came together to make this possible for Jess and I. Uh, people really were quite generous and did a lot of legwork for this and have persevered for three years now. And so uh, we just want to say we love you guys. We're very grateful. We're excited for the opportunity and uh, really excited to be able to share with you guys the things that we see and experience and hopefully to be able to connect the dots a little better when I teach. You know, I love the screen. I love the laser pointer. And so I'm going to come back with plenty of pictures and try to incorporate that into the, the teaching more. And so uh, just grateful to God. And Gene Kelly, brother, if you want to come up, expressed a desire to... Uh, he was real instrumental in this whole trip. He's gone many, many times. Typically, he would be on the trip. So he's, a, he's an expert in this area, and he uh, said he wanted to pray, pray for me and um, have the church pray corporately. So there you go. For all the reasons Rob said, um, we really believe this is important for Rob and Jessica to, uh, to experience, to, you know, everything he's been teaching for, what, 20-some years He's going to be seeing a lot of it firsthand, and that's he's going to be able to bring that back and bless you guys. But, you know, Satan would not want him to go, would not want them to have a good time, would not want them to be open. And so I really believe we need to pray over them and uh, bless them and make sure that you continue to think about them and pray for them because... You know, there'll be that one idiot on the trip that tries to annoy everybody without knowing it, right? And distracting. And there's so much to learn and so much to see. So I don't know if it's okay with you, but if you come down and Jessica come up, and I think the church should come together and just bless them for a second. Do you guys mind? Just come up here and put your hands on them. Let's experience this and pray for them. Everybody getting next to somebody anyway, God knows, right? Holy Spirit, um, speak for us to the Father, to Jesus. Uh, we play, pray for Rob and Jessica that you'd protect them uh, on this trip, protect them mentally, protect them physically. Uh, may the entire group bless each other, get along with each other, uh, travel safely, and be amazed and uh, open new doors, open up their minds to see new things and uh, just have an amazing time. And we pray for not just protection over them, but protection over this church, uh, over their family. Uh, there'd be no distractions, there'd just be simply joy. And uh, bless them, protect them. In the name of Jesus, we all pray, amen. All right, wow, what a treat, man. I think that's the first for me and my wife, so we love you guys, and we're just praising God for you, and grateful for your prayers and your love, your support, your fellowship, and so we praise the Lord and pray for you regularly. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John 13. If you would, join me in prayer before we begin to study God's Word. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Thank you that you have invited us into 
the throne room of grace. You've told us to draw near and to come boldly. We can do that because of the merit of Christ, the finished work of the cross, because we are accepted in Jesus, filled with the Spirit, and adopted into your family. And so we come here on this day, this special day that's set aside, set apart, the Lord's Day, to remember what Christ has done for us, to remember it afresh and anew, to give Him the honor and the glory that He deserves, to hallow You, Father, in our hearts and our minds, and to humble ourselves before Your Holy Word. And so, God, I pray that You would please speak to us through Your Holy Word, by Your Spirit, and that we would bring You much honor and glory today. And Holy Spirit, I pray that You would help us in our weakness, help our understanding, reveal Your truth to us, open our eyes and our hearts, that we may know You, that we may grow in our love for You, in our passion for the cross, and in our service, and in our obedience, and our worship. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, today we finish John chapter 13. uh, Many of us, I think, know by now we're in the upper room discourse. And that's one unit, chapters 13 through 17. Jesus has completed his public ministry, teaching and preaching to the masses. And now he has settled in and he has begun his private ministry. And he spends these chapters here, or we have these chapters that record for us Jesus' interactions with the disciples before he goes to the cross. Last week we examined verses 16 through 30. And that was uh, Judas's treachery. Jesus exposed Judas's treachery, but now Judas has exited the upper room, and only Jesus and the eleven remain. Now Jesus is able to speak very freely and intimately with his disciples, with the eleven, as the traitor is no longer present. And what Jesus is essentially doing now is preparing them preparing them for his departure. He is about to go, and he gives them these very special, very beautiful words. And he warns them, he gives them critical instruction. And today we're going to consider three principles that I believe we can draw from this text that I would say mark a true believer. Really, Jesus is encouraging these disciples into a deeper faith a deeper love, a deeper trust of God. And so I guess I would call this, uh, really as we work our way through this passage, through the upper room discourse, we could call this, you know, lessons from the upper room. And today we're going to see three markers of maturity. I don't know if it's maturity or maturity, and so I've just decided maturity because that doesn't sound as weird as maturity to me. So anyways, three markers of maturity. One more thing I feel necessary to consider at this juncture is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, that 13 through 17 is one unit, and in chapters 14 and 16, Jesus speaks very extensively about the Holy Spirit. He speaks more about the Holy Spirit here than He does anywhere else in the Gospels, I believe. And so I think that That's intentional. I think that's significant. I think what Jesus is essentially doing there is giving them these words of instruction and warning and encouragement, but connecting it to the need for the Holy Spirit. Amen? He did not leave them alone. He didn't leave them without a helper. He didn't give them these critical instructions and say, now go do it, figure it out. 
the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter would come and give them the ability to walk in these things. And of course, such is the case for ourselves. The disciples needed the Holy Spirit, and we do too. And praise God, we have the Holy Spirit. And I think it's just my desire for myself and for us that we would be more mindful of our need of the Holy Spirit and that we would be mindful in you know, day-to-day living to engage with the Holy Spirit and to appropriate the promises and the power that we have in the Holy Spirit to do these kinds of things. And of course, I can't wait to get to chapters 14 and 16 and delve into these truths of the Holy Spirit. And so I just don't want to divorce that. We need God's grace. We need the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we have those things. And so truly we can rejoice in the ability to do the things that Jesus has called us to do. Amen. All right. Well, with that, we're going to take a look at our text. I'll read it to us. And so if you have your Bible, look with me at John 13, verse 31 and following. This is the word of the Lord, and it reads as follows. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. All right, well, as I said, we have here what I would consider three markers of maturity. And uh, the first one, the first one here is consign yourself to the glory of God. And when I say consign, I, I mean give over and trust, surrender to. Jesus commits himself to the glory of God here in the first part of our text. And I think that this has great application for our lives. And so first point, as I said, consign yourself to the glory of God. And I'll, I'll read to us verses 31 and 32 again. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. That's a mouthful. And that's actually kind of hard to follow a little bit, but uh, I think the point is clear enough. Now, Judas has gone out to betray Jesus. We know that he has already conspired against Jesus with the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. We're told that Satan entered into Judas. Last week we talked about that. uh, Judas was right there at the table in the guest of honor seat. Jesus has already washed his feet. And John asked Jesus, who was it that was going to betray him? And Jesus says, it's the one to whom I dipped this piece of bread, which was a gesture of honor. So Jesus dipped the bread and handed it to the one seated in the guest of honor seat, Judas, 
And it says that when Judas received the bread, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, now do what you do, do it quickly, and Judas departed. Well, Jesus acknowledges here that the wheels are in motion. Judas has gone out. He's gone to betray Jesus, and the wheels are in motion. Jesus will soon be apprehended. We're just a few hours away from that at this point. Jesus says, now the Son of Man will be glorified, and God will be glorified in Him. Jesus was committed to glorify the Father. You need to get that. Mark that down. He was committed to glorify the Father, even at, especially at His own expense. Jesus glorified the Father at His own expense. Self-preservation was not Jesus' chief ambition in life. It was not His chief goal or end to preserve Himself. He came to give His life away. Self-sacrifice for God's ultimate plan was Jesus' chief ambition. He gave Himself to that. He consigned Himself to it. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Jesus knew, this is why I came. I can't pray, Father, deliver me from this, save me from this. This is why I came. Father, have Your way. Father, glorify Your name. That's a, there's real freedom in that. I love that. It's just a relinquishing of oneself over to God's will and God's plan, no matter the difficulty, no matter the pain. Father, you're good. I trust you. Your will be done. Here I am. Have your way in my life. Father, glorify yourself. Glorify your name. So what does it mean? To glorify the Father? What does it mean that the Son would be glorified? Because Jesus said that if the Father be glorified, the Son would be glorified. Well, it means to be praised, to be honored, to be magnified, to be worshiped, to be exalted. And I think we honor the Lord oftentimes when, you know, say something good happens and we say, oh man, I just, you know, praise God, right? We say that a lot. Something really wonderful happens in our lives. We want to give the credit to God. Amen? We want to give Him the honor and give Him the glory. And we do that regularly. We will point people to the Father, to Jesus, as the one who deserves the credit, the glory, the honor for some wonderful thing that He has allowed to transpire in our life. And so we know what that is to give honor. We know what it is to glorify God. Well, I love how J.C. Ryle speaks to this. He talks about how exactly God is honored through the crucifixion. We don't tend to think of the crucifixion as an honorable thing, as something that would bring glory, but something that would bring shame, right? He also talks about how the Son would receive glory through the crucifixion. And so, please uh, bear with me. These quotes are a little lengthy, but I just couldn't say this any better myself. And so, I just wanted us to set our hearts upon these truths because it is glorious. J.C. Ryle says that the crucifixion brought glory to the Father. It glorified His wisdom, faithfulness, holiness, and love. It showed Him wise in providing a plan whereby He could be just and the justifier of the ungodly. That God could somehow pardon sin and give grace and mercy. 
and still remain just. How does that happen? It happens at the cross where sin is punished, but mercy is dealt to undeserving sinners such as ourselves. It showed God faithful in keeping His promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God gave a promise of a Redeemer who would come. In John, I believe, it, uh, Genesis 3.15. And God showed Himself faithful to fulfill that promise in Christ. Continues, it showed Him holy in requiring His law's uh, demand to be satisfied by our great substitute. It showed Him loving by providing such a mediator, such a redeemer, and such a friend for sinful man as His co-eternal Son. So all of this and so much more is demonstrated about God through the crucifixion. It is glorious. Amen? But He also says of Jesus... The crucifixion brought glory to the Son. It glorified His compassion, His patience, and His power. It showed Him most compassionate in dying for us. He suffered in our stead, allowing Himself to be counted sin and a curse for us, and buying our redemption with the price of His own blood. That is compassion. That is why He went to the cross. That's why He suffered as He did, because of His love and deep compassion for us. Amen? It showed Him most patient in not dying the common death of most men, but in willingly submitting Himself to such horrors and unknown agonies as no mind can conceive, when with a word He could have summoned His Father's angels and been set free. It showed Him most powerful in bearing the weight of all the world's transgressions and vanquishing Satan and despoiling Him of His prey. The glories of the cross. And Pastor Dan, I'm good with that being the, being the official song. And so may that be the, the cry of our hearts. May Christ be exalted. May God receive glory because of what was accomplished at the cross. Indeed, Jesus will be honored, magnified, worshipped, praised, and exalted. But you know what? First, he had to be betrayed, abandoned, mocked, humiliated, tortured, and killed. Those things had to happen first. It was through the imminent agonies of Calvary that he would ultimately be glorified. And so this, I want you to catch this. This is kind of the, one of the, the principle here or an application I want to make. Jesus was able to look beyond the immediate for the glorious the glories that awaited him. He was able, he understood, he recognized that these things had to happen, but he looked past those things and he saw the glory that awaited him. And in the Christian life, so often that's how we have to operate. In the immediate, sometimes things are difficult. Some things don't don't make sense to us. Sometimes we hurt, we grieve deeply. But we know that God is in control, that God is good, and we look beyond the immediate to a higher truth, a higher reality. Amen? Through all the suffering, the Father would be glorified in the Son. Now, this is very lofty and super spiritual thinking. I would say this is mature thinking. That, this is the kind of thinking that a mature Christian would do when they're going through something that is crushing, something that is 
painful, something that is, you fill in the blank, but they have the ability to look beyond that and trust God and to praise Him anyways and to move forward, that is a real mark of maturity. It comes at a cost. You know, a willingness to endure anything with an eye toward giving God glory. A willingness to surrender to the most difficult things for the glory of God. Seeing the most difficult situation as an opportunity to glorify God. I mean, that is lofty thinking. When you're faced with a very difficult situation, you have an opportunity to praise God, to honor God, to trust God. Amen? And that's where it really counts. That is where it counts. Truly living with God's glory as our chief end will change the way that we live, folks. It will. And this wasn't something I don't think that I was really taught much about in the beginning of my Christian walk, is living with an eye for the glory of God, giving God the honor and the praise for all that we do. But it is very important. It's very basic and fundamental and foundational to the Christian life. Living for the glory of God and doing all things in obedience to Him and to His Word. I'll give you, you know, a little bit of a, an anecdote or an illustration of this from somebody in my own life that I observed uh, years ago. It was uh, a gentleman that I worked for. He had um, a cabinet business. I worked for him for five years, and God used this man. He was a godly man. He used him in my life uh, in, many, in many ways, and I, I praise God for him. Um, but, you know, years earlier, he had been in a business partnership. So before he had his own company, he had a business partnership with another guy, another professing believer, and they both had 50-50 ownership of the company. Well, this particular gentleman, he was very convicted that that was an unbiblical way to do it. The Bible teaches headship, that there's one person who's supposed to have the headship and one, you know, others are supposed to submit to the head. And you see that in marriage, you see it in church, you see it... In, uh, in a number of ways, biblically. And so he petitioned the other gentleman. The other guy was younger. He was younger in the faith. He wasn't as experienced in this particular line of work. So he petitioned the other guy to relinquish a percentage of the company over to him and allow him to be essentially the, the head, if you will, of, of the company. And Well, the other guy was like, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. No, I'm not going to do that. And I I mean, I guess we could see that and understand that. Well, this guy said, okay, then I'll relinquish mine to you. And so he handed over a percentage of the company and made the other guy essentially the the head of the the company, which I thought, wow, he really put his money where his mouth was on that one. He really believes this stuff, and it came at a cost to himself. Well, not long after that, the, the guy that had relinquished a percentage over, his wife left him for another man left him with his three small children and took off. And so the guy who had more ownership of the company and the bank were afraid that this guy's wife may try to divorce him and get part of the company. So they worked something out and kicked him out, got him out of the company. And so now he was put out of the business that he started. He's got three kids. His wife left him and he was encouraged, man, you need to sue the brakes off this guy. And he said, I can't do that. You know, the Bible says that brothers are not to uh, take one another to court. And uh, he saw this other guy as a brother, and he refused to do that. Well, you know, God really blessed this, this man. He, he started another company. 
It became very successful. It, uh, it really did thrive. I got to work for him there. He really saw it as his ministry. He said, we're not just building cabinets, cabinet doors, we're building men. And I was really mentored there in many ways by this gentleman, and the company is still here today. His sons have grown up and are now running it. And I just say, glory to God for that, amen? But that's a guy, the whole point I'm trying to make here is he did some things that we might look at and think, that's crazy. Who, why, who would do that? Why would you do that? And at times, it looked like it really backfired on him. But you know what? He honored God. He gave God the glory. He did the thing that didn't seem like very conventional wisdom to, to us, but biblically, he was obedient to the Word of God. He lived it like he actually believed it. He gave God the glory, and God honored him for that. And so when we live like that, when we really believe this stuff, when we really believe that Christ died for us and rose again from the grave and that we are brand new creations in Him and we're living for the glory of God, that's going to affect the way that we live. When we are living with an eye towards God's glory, that is going to dictate and determine how we carry ourselves in our day-to-day lives. We're going to be those who give generously, even out of our poverty, for the work of God because He who was rich became poor for our sake so that we who were in poverty became rich, right? We will want to emulate and give glory to and reflect our God in that way. We will forgive others because we have been forgiven much. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to forgive, especially against someone who maybe has grieved you or hurt you deeply. But if you really believe that you have been forgiven, you will glorify God by doing the same. We will strive to see the best in other people because the Bible says that love hopes and believes all things. Now, let me tell you, that's a hard one. That's hard to do. But that's love. That's the kind of love that Christ demonstrated. And so the Bible says that we're going to hope and believe, give the benefit of the doubt, and extend grace. We will trust God's goodness in the worst calamities. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard to trust God's goodness in the most trivial of calamities. You know, the silliest thing can happen. And I'm thinking, God, why? You know, and people are suffering like some legit stuff out there, right? And so, but the reality is, is having the ability to trust God's goodness even when everything seems to be falling apart because we know He's good, He's wise. He's loving, He's kind, He's gracious. Loving our enemies, having a love for our enemies and praying for those who would hurt us or persecute us because Christ died for us when we were His enemies. Amen? Christ died for us when we were His enemies. How can we do any less? And we can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you see what I'm saying here? This is a deeper level of living. It's a a higher level level, a higher plane of living when it comes to living for the glory of God. And here's the thing, you can't outgive God. You cannot outgive God. And the Bible says God honors those who honor Him. And Christ went to such a a low level, He condescended from glory to shame, and God has exalted Him and given Him the name above every name. Amen? And so Jesus said that if he honors God, God will honor him, and God has honored his son. And so no matter the difficulty of the situation, you know what? You're never going to regret living for the glory of God. I can't think of a time where I thought, you know, I glorified God in that, and I wish I wouldn't have. 
It's never backfired on me. I can think of many other situations that backfired on me in the worst way when I wasn't being mindful towards God's glory at all. But you're never going to regret giving God honor, obeying God, trusting God, glorifying God, and living to that end. Amen? So let us relinquish ourselves to the glory of God. Let us consign ourselves. I hope I'm using that word correctly. I, I did look that up because I know it has different meanings. And so, anyways. All right, number two. Commit yourself to a new and greater depth of love. So I have three C's here. So commit yourself to a new and greater depth of love. Look with me at verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Now, Jesus had previously told the Jews he was leaving and that they could not follow, and they were totally confused. They thought, is he going to kill himself? Like, what's he even talking about? Well, now Jesus is saying the same thing to his disciples. Now, Peter's not going to be able to move beyond this, this statement right here. Jesus is going to continue on, but Peter is really stuck on this, and he's going to circle back to it in a moment. But Jesus is essentially preparing them for the weightiness of what he is about to say. He's about to tell them some very critical things. And he's like saying, look, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you cannot come, so I need you to get this while I'm here with you now. Understand? And so I think that's essentially what Jesus is doing here. And, and so this is what he says, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's epic. So Jesus is leaving his disciples with a new commandment, to love one another. Now, the thing is... This commandment is not necessarily new. That's an old commandment, to love one another, right? Love God and to love others, to love others as we love ourselves, right? But Jesus qualifies this commandment with His own example. As I have loved you, the command was originally to love as we would love ourselves, but now we're to love others as we have been loved in Jesus, now, I love how John, who is the author of the Gospel of John, uh, he reiterates this and expands upon it in 1 John. And so, if you would, allow me to read that. John speaking over in 1 John says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning, and that's to love God and to love others, right? Then verse 8, he says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so John, basically, the, the same thing I just said, John says that pretty clearly in 1 John, but what I, I wanted to draw our attention to is um, one commentator he kind of speaks to this, and I love how he clarifies this. He brings a little more clarity to it. He says, New is not referring to new as in the sense of time, but in, uh, that is uh, something that is fresh in quality and kind. 
So it's not new as in it's, you know, like some brand new thing time-wise, but quality-wise. Something that replaces something else that has been worn out. The commandment of love was new because Jesus personified love in a fresh new way. And it was shed abroad in believers' hearts and energized by the Holy Spirit. Man, I love that. I love that. Jesus personified this love. The world has never seen love like the love of Christ. The world has never known love like the love of Christ. He personified love. God is love, the Bible says. His very essence is love. That's why He does what He does, because He is love. Well, Jesus is God in the flesh. He personified God's love, the invisible God, the God that no one has ever seen. Jesus personified that for us in a fresh, in a new way. And then that love has been shed abroad in the believer's hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that. I love that verse. We are energized by the Holy Spirit to love like that. See, that's why it's new. That's the difference. That's the distinction. We have this great example, Jesus Christ. We have been loved by Him. We've been filled with His Holy Spirit and empowered to be able to love like He loved. Isn't that incredible? And Jesus says, if you're my disciple, that's what you're going to do. Love one another, my little children. Love one another as I have loved you. You know, it's, it's by this kind of love that we have assurance. He says, by this all will know. And that, would, I would say, includes us. We're going to know. We're going to know that we have Christ because we have this kind of love for the brethren. And again, in 1 John, he really expounds on this in 1 John chapter 3. And so he says this, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. I mean, there it is. It couldn't be any more clear. We know that we have gone from darkness into light because we have love for the saints, love for the followers of Jesus, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, He who does not love his brother continues in death, still dead, has not passed from death to life. He says, By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. So there it is. There's the example of Jesus. That's how we know what true love is. And he says, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He gets a little more practical. He says in verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, the thing about love is love gives. Love is not just a sentiment, it is an action. And though Jesus' heart was full of compassion and love and mercy, He acted upon it. He acted upon it. He met our greatest need. You've heard me say this several times before, but I love this little illustration. You know, He gave us, he gave us the gift that was most suitable to our greatest need. If someone's on death row... They give them a last meal, right? Well, that's not the greatest gift. The greatest gift would be a pardon. That's what they most need. They don't deserve it, but that would be the need. You understand what I'm saying? Well, He gave us 
the most suitable gift for our need, and that was a pardon from sin. And we didn't deserve it. But such was His love and His grace and His mercy. And so, therefore, it follows that we're going to do the same. We're going to love God. We're going to love others as Christ loved us. We're going to love sacrificially, unconditionally. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it practically. And so I just have to ask, are we acting in love in the little things? You know, start with the little things. Are you loving your spouse? Are you loving your kids? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you serving very simple, practical needs? Are you Are you speaking love and kindness and encouragement? Are you meeting tangible needs, real needs, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, uh, sharing the gospel? I mean, whatever. Are we living out love? Are we loving others? John says in verse 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. So there's that assurance. Our hearts can be confident. You can have assurance. I can have assurance. We can be assured that we are in the faith. You know, there's a lot of people that don't have that assurance. They live in perpetual fear, questioning their own salvation. The reality is we cannot put our trust in our own performance. Our assurance has to be in the finished work of Jesus Christ, what He did on the cross. Amen? That's where our assurance lies. It does not lie in my performance point blank, because I don't perform well. My works don't always work. And so, you know, that's where our assurance has to lie. But John does say that our hearts can be assured before him if we are full of and walking in this kind of love. That just bolsters our assurance, right? I I think for my wife, I told her that I loved her on our wedding day, But I continue to try to do what I can to assure her of my love even still to the present hour, right? And so that's kind of how this is. Um, God loves us. He's proven His love to us at the cross. He continues to assure us of His love for us, and we essentially do the same. And we assure our own hearts in our service and love to His saints. This is such an extraordinary love that Jesus said it will be a witness to the world. It's going to be so unique. It's going to be so significant that others are going to know that we really belong to Jesus when they see this kind of love. Jesus says that when this kind of love is in action, people are going to know that we're His. Amen? And so let us love. All right, lastly, third point. Cultivate a healthy sense of distrust. Cultivate a healthy sense of distrust. Or let me put it a different way. Beware misplaced confidence. Beware misplaced confidence. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. So as I said already, Peter doesn't even respond to the command to love. He's still back there where Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow me. So now Jesus says, yeah, 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 okay, but, or Peter says, where are you going? And why, why, can't, I, why can't I follow you? And Jesus says that he can't follow him now, but he will follow him afterward. I think this is probably another reference to Peter's death. We have that a couple of times. Uh, John 
20 in particular, Jesus essentially sounds like he's telling Peter he's going to be crucified. He's going to follow Jesus in that sense. And Peter clearly recognized that because I think in 2 Peter, he basically says as much that Jesus had, had told him that. And so, verse 37, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, you will lay down your, or excuse me, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, it seems like Peter understands that Jesus is talking about his death. I'm going to die. You can't follow me now, but you will later. Because Peter says, I will lay down my life for your sake. I will follow you to certain death, right? Peter assures him that he will do that. But Jesus challenges Peter's bold claim. Oh yeah? Will you, Peter, follow me? You're so sure. You're so confident. Actually, you're going to deny knowing me three times before the night is over. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. It's already into the, the evening hours. We know the rooster crows at, at daylight. And so he's essentially saying before the morning comes, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. That's amazing. I mean, Jesus called it. Jesus knew this, and Jesus said that this was what was going to happen, and it's exactly what happened. And Peter is a classic example of one who has a serious, misplaced confidence. I heard that phrase some years back, a healthy, uh, a healthy distrust of self, and I like that. I think that's good. I think it's good to have a healthy distrust of self. And I'll explain that a little bit. You know, we can have, a, we can have an unhealthy distrust of self. Woe is me, I'm terrible, you know, and, and on and on, and self-loathing. And we can go way too far with that, you understand? So there is like a healthy balance there. But we also need to recognize that, man, if we're putting all our hope and our confidence in ourselves we're in for a rude awakening, right? And Paul basically speaks to, to this in, in a number of places. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, people were, you know, people were bragging about who they were following. I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. It was sectarianism happening in the church. There were these cliques and these groups and these power moves and dynamics that were happening. And Paul basically says, you know, what do you have that you didn't receive? You know, why, why are you boasting in yourself or in your little group or in your quote-unquote leader? He says, what do you have that you didn't receive, and why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? And all we have is what God gives us, and it's ours because God in His grace has given it to us. And so we need to humble ourselves and not think too highly of ourselves and not look down on other people because somehow we think they're not in our little group, Right? So Paul deals with this in a number of places. In Romans chapter 12, when he's dealing with spiritual gifts, he says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith. And so people could be braggadocious about their giftings. And Paul says, look, 
we need to think of ourselves by God's grace with sober thinking. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't think too low of yourselves. Because, right, he also in 1 Corinthians talks about people who have a tendency to say, well, I don't have that gift, and so I don't have any value or meaning or worth, right? That's, that's, that's having, you know, the self-loathing thing. But then there are others who might think, I've got the good gifts. Look at me. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. You don't have this gift. And so he's saying, look, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Don't think too highly of yourselves. And, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's dealing with idolatry. And he talks about all these examples from the Old Testament about how Israel was uh, had such a propensity to fall into idol worship. And he says, all of these things were written for your sake as an example to you. And then he says this, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, what? Lest he falls. And so there's all of these admonishments to think soberly, to, to not think too highly of ourselves, not to think too low of ourselves. But I would say to have a, have a balanced perspective. And I would say that's really a, a healthy sense of distrust. You know what? If not for the grace of God, there I, there I go, right? Therefore, he who thinks he stands, take heed. Be cautious. Watch out, because a fall might be heading your way. And so, let me just kind of close with this, a couple thoughts. If we're not to put our confidence in ourselves, then what are we to put our confidence in? Amen. That's the answer. Jesus, right? But I would say there's a number of things that the Bible tells us that we can put our hope and our confidence in. Number one, the cross. Amen? Hope and the cross. I love what Paul said. He said, God forbid that I should boast in anything, anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to it. See, people had a tendency to boast in or put confidence in the flesh and their ability to keep God's law. And Paul said, you're essentially severing yourself from grace. You're separating yourself from the grace of God by putting your confidence in your own abilities to keep the law. He said, well, God forbid that I ever do that. He said, I will put my hope and my boast and my trust in the cross of Jesus and that alone. Amen? So if you are somehow here today and you are hoping, thinking, believing that just maybe if you were to die and have to stand before a holy God that you're going to be okay because you're, generally speaking, a good person, or somehow you've, you've uh, convinced yourself that you have done more good things than bad things, as though we could actually quantify that. Um, don't do that. Abandon that. Forsake that way of thinking. That's deception. Trust the cross of Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we have all failed to live. He lived a life of perfection. We did not. We have lived a life of rebelliousness and sin and transgression against a good and a holy God. But Jesus, in love and compassion, died the sinner's death, the rebel's death, the criminal's death for us in our stead on that same cross. And He rose again from the grave, victorious, victorious for us, so that if we would abandon self-trust... If we would take all of our hope, all of our trust off of our own abilities and our own accomplishments and achievements and put that on Christ, I trust Him. I have confidence in His perfect life. I have confidence in His substitutionary death for me. And you say, Lord, forgive me. I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. I need your righteousness. I will follow you. 
You'll be born again. That's what the Bible says. And Jesus says you must be born again. So your hope, your confidence has to be in the cross. Amen? Certainly not in ourselves. Well, we should put our hope and our confidence in the Word of God. Amen? God's holy Word. That is the truth. The true truth. The Word of God. That is where true wisdom is to be found. And the Bible says of the Bible that it endures. Amen? Heaven and earth passes away, but the Word of God endures. The Word is a lamp, and through it our our path is lit. We can walk. We can see. We can live because God's Word is a lamp to us. God's Word cuts. God's Word discerns. God's Word reaches and penetrates into the, the deepest part of our being and reveals to us that we need God, that we are in big trouble apart from Him. And it, it shows us much of ourselves, but it doesn't leave us there. It shows us the remedy, Christ, the Holy Spirit, grace, the gospel, godly and practical living, very relevant for today. And God exalts His Word above His own name. God says, I have exalted my word above my name. That's amazing. And folks, we have the word of God. Hallelujah. God said, I will exalt that above my own name. And we have it for ourselves. We're to trust the spirit. You want to have confidence? Put confidence in the spirit for power and guidance. Zechariah says, not by power nor by might, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord. We can trust the Holy Spirit for what we need for wisdom, for discernment, for guidance, for comfort, for power, all that we need. We can trust the Holy Spirit. We can trust God's grace to sustain us. Amen? You know, Paul cried out to God. He had a thorn in the flesh. We're not even sure what that is. We can speculate But he cried out and cried out and cried out that God would take that away. And this was the response that he got. 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I've always thought, what does that mean? He says that when I am weak, God is strong. Well, when I think I'm strong and I don't need God's grace, I don't need God's strength, I really am weak and I'm heading for a fall. But when I recognize my weakness, my feebleness, and my need for God's grace, there is true strength in that. God is really able to work and to demonstrate His power and His strength. And Paul said, therefore, I most gladly will rather boast in my infirmities. How about that? He said, I'm going to brag, I'm going to put confidence in my infirmities, in my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's amazing, isn't it? So Paul put his hope, his confidence, his trust in God's grace. And I would say, lastly, we need to put our hope and our confidence not in ourselves, but in God's ability. God's ability to do all that we cannot do. And Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Amen. God's able. I'm not able. I'm not able to keep myself, and neither are you. It is God's grace. It is God's Spirit. It is God's Word. It is God's ability, God's strength that is able to keep us from stumbling. That is 
from falling away, from turning away from the faith, and to present us faultless. Can you present yourself faultless? So we talk about, you know, some people think my, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Well, you have to be faultless. It's not enough to just have more good, to have done more good than bad in your life. You have to be faultless. And you are not going to be able to, and I cannot present myself faultless before the throne. There's only one who can do that, Jesus Christ, through the cross. God Himself, He is able, He is able to keep us in this life from stumbling and to present us faultless on that day. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise God. God is good. And I would say, you know, these are, the, these are three markers... Three things that we need to be looking for in our lives. Are we those who are living with an eye towards God's glory? Do we relinquish ourselves, give ourselves over to, consign ourselves to the glory of God? Are we committed to a new and and greater depth of love? The love of Jesus that is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, have we cultivated, are we cultivating a healthy sense of distrust, not putting our trust in ourselves, but in Him. I think that if those things are happening in your life, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. We need to be aiming for that, praying for that. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, we love You. We worship You. We thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, God, that uh, You have met with us here today that you have spoken, not because of me, but because you're faithful and your word is living. And because you do reveal glorious things to your children from your word. Your word is sufficient, and we thank you for it. And I just pray for all of us here today. We need these things in our lives, all of us. And apart from your Holy Spirit and your grace, Lord, we're not going to be able to grow in these things. But thank you that we have your Holy Spirit because we've trusted you for salvation and we've been born again and we've been filled with the Spirit. Please, Father, fill us afresh. Fill us to overflowing. Pour your Spirit out upon us in abundance that we may walk in the fullness of the Spirit, the fullness of joy. We worship you here today. Father, take joy in our adoration towards you and please receive our praise, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.